Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Broadstairs Consulting believes that crisis isn't an if, it's a when. And although we are unafraid of crisis, we've never known one to be resolved in a single day. However long the day or night that gave rise to it in the first place, there's always something we can learn. Tune in now to The Longest Day a short and snappy weekly crisis podcast where we interview leaders about crises emerging on their watch. New episodes released every Thursday. This podcast is a Royfield Brown production. Find others on iTunes. All right. Ladies and gentlemen, please remain standing for the singing of our national anthem. Brexit. My administration has accomplished more than almost any administration in the history of our country. Hello and welcome to Mid-Atlantic, the podcast where we examine the news and the views from one side of the Atlantic from the perspective of the other. At least that's what we do normally. In this episode, we're going to venture further afield. We're going to look at some of the stories, myths, and propaganda at the heart of the Israel and Palestine conflict. This is, of course, set against the current backdrop of Israel's conflict with Hamas. Joining us to delve into these complex events is Professor Benny Morris, an Israeli historian who is renowned for his critical examination of the conflict's history. As tensions rise in the Middle East, Professor Morris's insights are even more pertinent than ever. We'll discuss his work on the events of 1948 and their connection to the current conflict, drawing on his comprehensive research into the Palestinian refugee problem and the broader historical context of the region. You could say that this episode of Mid-Atlantic is where history meets the moment. At Flushing, Long Island, the General Assembly of the United Nations has made its decision on Palestine. The map shows what partition means. The Jewish state colored light, the Arab state dark, Jaffa to go to the Arabs, Jerusalem internationalized. There was heated debate in the assembly. This is the delegate from Saudi Arabia arguing against partition. Then, Senor Arana of Brazil, presiding, calls on the nations to vote and announces how they vote. Saudi Arabia? No. Soviet Union? Yes. United Kingdom? Abstain. The United States? Yes. The resolution 
of the Duck Committee for Palestine was adopted by 33 votes, 13 against, 10 abstention. And this was the scene next day in Jerusalem. The Jewish people at once began to celebrate the United Nations decision. If they hadn't got all they wanted, they had at least gained the verdict for the setting up of a new Jewish state, and their rejoicing was obviously a spontaneous affair. Such was the immediate Jewish reaction in Jerusalem, and it was the same in Tel Aviv and elsewhere. The Arab reaction was to follow. Two days later, this was the typical scene. Arabs advancing on the center of Jerusalem at the beginning of a three-day strike. During this time, fighting between Arabs and Jews was a commonplace occurrence, and there were many casualties on both sides through stabbing and shooting. Professor Benny Morris, how are you today? I'm okay. Well, it's not so good, but I'm okay. Israel is in the middle of a maelstrom right now. Just before we delve into your work and specifically the set of papers which you did around 1948, some time ago now, but I think it's really important to look into that uh, because in many ways that is not necessarily the start, but it's one of the most important years for people to understand exactly what's going on. How exactly, on a personal level, have you been affected by the events of October 7th? Thankfully, I wasn't involved personally, and nobody really close to me was uh, killed or taken hostage by the Hamas. But uh, I was, like I think almost all Israelis were, was completely shocked by what had happened. The failure of the intelligence to understand what the Hamas was about to launch and the failure of the army to respond or react to what had happened uh, quickly and, of course, shocked by what the Hamas did during those 10, 15 hours in which they controlled about a dozen villages they'd occupied, invaded, uh, murdering babies, um, raping women and killing them uh, and taking hostage uh, children, babies, old people to Gaza, 240 in number. Altogether, they killed 1,400 Israelis and um, abducted and taken hostage um, about 240 in one day, which is the most shocking, in fact, thing that had happened to the Jewish people since the Holocaust, basically. I, I don't want to get too much into the contemporary politics of the last month, but with your historical head on, I don't know which other head you'd actually have on, but thinking of the, the history of the state state of Israel and the, the shocking failure of intelligence post the kinetic part of this conflict, what ramifications do you think there will be for the Israeli security apparatus that it could seem to fail so spectacularly? And I think it's fairly clear it's going to be a sort of a repeat of a previous major intelligence failure, and that was 1973 when the Egyptian and Syrian armies surprised the Israeli army um, and attacked uh, Israel in the Sinai Peninsula and the Golan Heights. That was followed by a commission of inquiry and was rapidly followed by uh, the forced resignation of the heads of the uh, military and and effectively also the heads of the government within a year. And this is going to be, I think, the same thing is going to happen after this. Prime Minister Netanyahu will try to drag out the process as long as possible, 
um, uh, the commission of investigation as long as possible, which he's also resisting the establishment of. But ultimately, he will have to be forced. He will be forced to resign. Uh, the chief of general staff, the head of intelligence, military intelligence, the head of the security service, the Shin Bet, uh, and the head of Southern Command. These all these heads will roll for certain. There's no no way this can be avoided. And my uh, sense is also that the government, Netanyahu's incompetent, corrupt government, um, proven before this failure on October the 7th, will also basically have to go, and there will be new elections within a year or two in Israel. This is my uh, assessment of what's coming. And that doesn't depend on how this war is going to end. Uh, the current uh, Israeli um, counteroffensive against the Hamas in Gaza, perhaps involving eventually the Hezbollah in uh, Lebanon, and maybe even involving Iran itself which uh, would deserve being hit uh, at long last uh, for all the things it's been doing in the Middle East in the past 20 years. Thank you for that perspective. Maybe if we have time towards the end of the show, we can come back and maybe question you a little bit more about the current conflict and and possibly a post-conflict world. But, But thank you for that. Let's go back. 1948. This is a year which doesn't only create the state of Israel, rather the year creates it, but you get my point, that the state of Israel has created that year. But it also creates the current issue of Palestinian, let's say, homelessness, if not statelessness. And you really have focused in on that year to call yourself a new historian. So for people who are new to the detail of Israeli history, tell us the significance of, of your work in studying 1948 and maybe how it's changed Israeli perceptions of what happened. Latest camera records from Palestine show heavy damage in and around the Arab city of Jaffa as Haganah troops move up to new positions along the war-scarred roads. Jaffa itself has become an almost deserted city, most of the 70,000 inhabitants having left when the State of Israel was proclaimed. The historic fortress of Acre came into the possession of Haganah, for whom it's an important base. Some troops of this force are continuing their training, others go out on patrol. While behind the troubled scene, negotiations for a ceasefire continue from day to day. 1948, I think, is the crucial year in the evolution of the um, Zionist-Arab conflict, which uh, today is more or less focused on the Israeli-Palestinian part of the conflict, but it was a more general thing. The Arab world and the Islamic world opposed the uh, creation of a Jewish state in the land of Israel, which is called Palestine um, uh, by Arabs and much of the world. And at the end of 1947, the United Nations General Assembly trying to solve the clash between Jews and Arabs in Palestine, which was then ruled by the British, the United Nations General Assembly passed a resolution Resolution 181, proposing the partition of Palestine in two states, one Jewish, one Arab. This is November 1947. The Jews accepted the partition proposal and plan, and the Arabs, Palestinian Arabs, rejected it. The Palestinian Arabs were supported by the Arab states around Egypt, Jordan, Syria, Lebanon, Iraq, and they too rejected the proposal. And the day after the resolution passed in New York in the General Assembly, 29th of November 1947, the day after that, the Palestinians began shooting, starting the 1948 war. 
They were defeated by the Israelis by the middle of 1948, the Palestinian militias, the Palestinian people, if you like. At the time, there were about 1.2 million Palestinians in Palestine, and there were 650,000 Jews. Nonetheless, the Jews beat the Palestinian militias, and the Arab states invaded Palestine on the 15th of May 1948, coming to their brother's aid, aiming in some way to destroy the Jewish state, or at least to diminish it substantially. The Arab states were also defeated in that war, and by 1949, there was an armistice between the Israelis and the Arab states and the Palestinians who had been defeated. Many of them fled the area which became the state of Israel. Some were expelled, some were asked by their leaders to leave. Many of them just fled the battle, probably hoping that after the war, they would come back under the aegis of the Arab armies or the United Nations or God knows how, that they would come back to their own. But in the end, they didn't. One of the two results of the 48 war was the defeat of the Arab states, of course, and the Palestinians, but also the creation of the state of Israel and the creation of a vast Palestinian refugee problem of the one point. 2 million Palestinians, 750,000 or 700,000 approximately, were displaced from their homes from the area which became the state of Israel. Most of them went to the West Bank and the Gaza Strip, which is today the place where battle has been joined again, and the others fled Jordan, Syria, and Lebanon. But most of them fled to the West Bank and the Gaza Strip. One last point. In 1947, the Gaza Strip, that is Gaza City, Dira Balaf, Rafiaf, and so on, contained something like 60,000 Arabs, inhabitants. Um, by the end of 48, with the refugees who poured into it, the place had 260,000. In other words, four-fifths of the population were refugees. By the end of 1948, refugees come from outside the Gaza Strip, and they had been settled there in camps or whatever. And what we see today is basically a clash of the descendants of those 200,000 refugees, who now number something like 2 million. So that's what happened in terms of the Gaza Strip, which was occupied in 1948 by the Egyptian army, but was lost to Egypt in 1967 when Israel won the Six-Day War and took the Gaza Strip and the Sinai Peninsula, and also occupied the West Bank and East Jerusalem, where again, most of the Palestinians lived basically, 1967. Why was your research into the expulsion or what the Palestinians would call the Nakba so controversial all those years ago? Why have you seen as a revisionist? Until the 1980s, the Zionist narrative, the Israeli narrative, was that the Palestinians who had become refugees, those 700,000, were essentially ordered by their leaders or advised by their leaders or by the Arab states' leaders, to leave their homes, to make way for the Arab invading armies, and that they would come back on the back of a victorious Arab armies. That was the Israeli narrative. The Palestinian narrative was that the Israelis, with predetermination and pre-planning, had expelled these 700,000 people in line with what they saw as Zionist ideology. My research in the 1980s on the newly opened Israeli documentation but also newly opened American, British, and United Nations documentation showed that the truth lay somewhere in the middle. In other words, subverting the Zionist narrative, but in some ways subverting also the Arab narrative. There was no predetermined plan. There was no a systematic expulsion of the Palestinians. But on the other hand, most of them fled because of Israeli conquest and fear of Israeli conquest, 
Israeli atrocities in the 48 war. It wasn't because their leaders called them, though some, a certain percentage did leave because of advice or orders by their leaders, and a certain amount were expelled by Israeli troops deliberately. Most simply fled, probably hoping to come back when the dust settled, but they didn't, and Israel didn't allow them to come back. So this sort of conclusion of what I found in the documentation, and it was um, embodied in two or three books about what had happened in 1948, uh, as I say, riled Israelis and also didn't really make the Palestinians happy either because it subverted their narrative as well. So, so just to put... Let, let, let me add, let, let, can I add one more thing to this? Okay. The subversion of the Israeli narrative in some way seemed to impound the Israelis and they subvert their sense of purity or the morality of their war-making in 48. Got it. Just so we give flesh to to the expulsions for the listeners, can you give us an example of, let's say, an Israeli-inspired atrocity, but then also another example of Palestinians fleeing from, let's say, an encroaching Israeli army, because I think that's the the really important thing that the what you said that this wasn't necessarily a systematic thing from Ben Gurion and the and the uh, the government of the time, the newly minted government of the time. Uh, it'd be really good if there's a couple of examples in terms of villages or towns which okay you have an expulsion. Yeah, why don't you to tell us that? Okay, let me add some a uh, footnote to what I just said or an addendum. There were atrocities on both sides in the 48 war, but it ended up that the Jews committed more atrocities than the Arabs. And this was, as I say, a factor in the departure or creation of the refugee problem. Two possible examples of what happened in the war. On the 21st and 22nd of April 1948, the main Jewish militia, the Haganah, conquered parts of Arab neighborhoods of the city of Haifa. And this conquest basically led to the flight of the majority of Haifa's population. They boarded boats and they fled to Acre and to Lebanon. Some of them walked out, but basically they fled the town under the impact of the Israeli conquest. In fact, the Jewish mayor of Haifa asked the Palestinian Arabs to stay in town because there had been a good coexistence between the two populations in the town. It was about 70,000 Jews, 70,000 Arabs at that time, 1948. And the mayor, Levi, asked them to stay, but the Arab leaders of the, the community said no, and as I say, they fled. So this was an example of flight, basically, of the Arabs under the impact of conquest by the Jews, a fear of the Jews, fear of atrocity by the Jews, and perhaps a little bit of nudging by Arab leaders who pushed them to leave because had they stayed, they might have been blamed as traitors for accepting Jewish sovereignty, accepting Jewish rule, agreeing to live under the Jews. The port of Haifa in Palestine lies shattered by bombs and strewn with dead. Victorious Haganah troops have driven the Arabs out of the beleaguered city, taking many prisoners. A few pitiful refugees rescue what few belongings they can. There's a rush for the boats as the bitter strife continues in the stricken Holy Land. Just so really quick, so Haifa... In terms of the 1947 UN partition, would have been part of Arab Palestine. Just to so, be just clear. Haifa, Haifa was deep in the Jewish sector of Palestine, the area of Palestine where there was a Jewish majority. So this was probably one of the reasons they departed so readily 
was that they knew that the world had given Haifa to the Jews as part of their state and didn't look forward probably to life under the Jews. Another example, and this is from the other end of the scale, if you like, is uh, what happened in the town of Lida, which is about 10, 15 miles from Tel Aviv, in the center of the country, next to what's today Israel's main international airport, Ben Gurion. The town of Lida was uh, an Arab town. It had something like 25,000 population. The center of the town was occupied by Israeli troops on the 11th of July, 1948. The Arabs hadn't formally surrendered, but the center of town was occupied. The morning of the next day, the 12th of July, several Arab armored cars from the Arab Legion, which is Jordan's army, entered the town, not knowing apparently that the town had been occupied. A firefight developed between the Jordanian armored cars and the Israeli troops who occupied the center of town. The Israeli battalion numbered about four or 500 troops, and there they were, stuck in the middle of town, surrounded by about 20,000 Arabs who hadn't even surrendered. When the armored cars entered town and the firefight began between the occupying force and the Jordanian legionnaires, many of the Arab townspeople pulled guns out of their closets and started sniping at the Jewish forces. And the Jewish forces put down what they later called this rebellion by the townspeople viciously. The Israeli troops apparently killed about 200 Arabs in the town and then immediately issued an order for the Arab inhabitants of Lida to leave the town. And with a loudspeaker, the Jewish troops moved about town in jeeps and said, you have an hour to go eastward towards the Arab Legion lines in the West Bank. And the 25,000 inhabitants of the town left the town. And this was essentially an expulsion. And at the same time, Israel ordered the departure as well of the inhabitants of a neighboring Arab town called Ramle. And these two left. And this was the biggest expulsion of the war. But as I said, this was pretty unusual. Most of the 700,000 fled simply as a result of encroaching battle, the flame of war. They didn't want to get caught up in it, and they simply fled, not because they were ordered by Arab leaders, and not because they were told to leave by Jewish commanders, but because they were in fear and probably expected to be allowed to come back. But Israel, in the middle of the war, said no coming back. We've now left. There will be no mass return of Arabs. But is it also fairly safe to say that local commanders on the ground sometimes expelled the Arabs because it was much more beneficial because of the the fog of war. This was a case of let's get these people out of this place because it's better that we occupy this town because then we can trust the loyalty of the inhabitants of this town, village or settlement. Yes, and the natural desire of local commanders, say they moved in and conquered a village or conquered a town, the Israeli commanders would naturally want not to leave a large Arab population behind, which might start sniping at their communications or occupying troops and so on. But the truth is that in most places, people simply fled before the Israeli troops arrived in the town or village. So there wasn't even a necessity to expel them. Most commanders didn't face this choice of expelling or not expelling because the Arabs left. From that point on, the Israeli occupying troops simply didn't allow Arabs to return to the village. Considering there's going to be a war in, in 67, there's going to be a war in 73, there's going to be two intifadas. Can we contextualize the level of atrocities on both sides? 
a casual reading of this is that, yes, they happened. But considering the post-history, can we say that the level of atrocities was relatively small? Or is this also part of the narrative that this has been, let's say, underplayed on the Israeli part and maybe exaggerated on the Palestinian? That's a good point you're making. My research found uh, several dozen small massacres, even one or two larger massacres by the Israeli side, a certain number of mass killings of civilians by Arabs. Altogether, my, by my assessment, something like 1,000 Arabs were killed by Israeli troops in the course of this year-long war, and that probably something like between two and 300 Israelis, Jews, were killed by Arabs in the course of the war outside of the fighting. And these numbers are extremely small when you compare atrocities in other wars to what happened in 1948 in Israel-Palestine. Say, for example, in the Yugoslav wars of the 1990s, in a place called Srebrenica, Serbs killed 7,000 Muslims, executed them basically, 7,000 in a two or three day spree of killing. I'm talking here, and that's in one or two or three days. Here I'm talking about a year-long war fought between two peoples. The Jews essentially attacked by the Arabs, not essentially. They were the, the victims in this war. They were the people who were defenders, and the Arabs were the aggressors. In this year-long war, actually not that many people died in atrocity, maybe partly because a lot of people fled. The Arabs didn't manage to conquer Jewish villages or towns almost completely. The Jews conquered 400 or 500 Arab villages and towns, but almost nobody was there when the Jews occupied the place, so atrocities didn't occur in the, the overwhelming number of places. But this was important for the narrative of the new Israeli state to say that we didn't force anybody to go, people left. And, and what your research says is that isn't quite the truth. It, it's a muddled picture. Sometimes people did get up and go because they were scared but there were some, some false expulsions. But generally what there wasn't were a level of atrocity. So got that point. I distinguish between atrocities and expulsions. Atrocities yes. being deliberate killing of POWs or of civilians, rape of POWs or civilians. As I say, these were very minor in terms of numbers. Everybody killed, of course, is an atrocity and very unfortunate, tragic, but very few occurred. Expulsions yeah. here and there occurred, but expulsions were a sort of military necessity because otherwise, if you left population behind you, and this is a population which uh, had just started a war with you, who tried to kill you, if you left them behind, your war making would suffer tremendously as a result. As far as I know, the laws of war also accept that not as an atrocity. No, I, I, absolutely. And I, I was making that distinction ethnic cleansing in the modern parlance. It wasn't called it then. Uh, but generally speaking, uh, the the level of killing civilians was incredibly low. But what did happen was that some Arab villages, the population moved because they were scared that there might be some level of reprisal. And then sometimes that they were forced to move. And it was important for the new Israeli state to underplay the level of military coercion, but it was important on the Palestinian side to exaggerate that. And it plays into the narrative of the Palestinian refugees. We were all 
turfed out of our homes and it plays into the narrative of the new Israeli state that we were attacked by the this coalition of Arab countries and the population which wasn't Jewish that might have been here beforehand the majority of them got up and, and left so understand that one of the things which as a small boy I I was enthralled by the story of the Six Days War in 1967 and Tanks and Musha Dayan and it was literally Professor one of the first books I got from Perry Bar Library in Birmingham in England my mother used to give me my money to go onto the bus to go to the library to go to the library get some books I got a book about the history of Austria and, and the Six Days War never forgotten how enthralled I was to Israel's military victory there but the narrative of that book was also that in 1948 there had been a miracle in terms of the Israeli success there one of the things which you also have revised is that isn't it saying that the balance of power wasn't necessarily in favor of the Arabs that historians like you have said that wasn't necessarily the case and that Israel did have an advantage in manpower and also in arms. Now, you've given us the, the demographics that there were more Palestinian Arabs than there were Israeli Jews. So why that revision? Why did Israel actually have an advantage in manpower and arms? The manpower disadvantage or disadvantage is even greater, actually. When you consider that there, there were two Arabs for every Jew in Palestine, there were also 10 times more Arabs around Palestine, Jordanians, Egyptians, Moroccans, Iraqis, Syrians. So the Arabs had a tremendous geographical, economic, and a demographic advantage over the 650,000 Jews who lived in Palestine. And you have to remember that. It's a very small community. But the Jews nonetheless won, and it wasn't a matter of miracle. It was basically a matter of organization. The 650,000 Jews had organized properly for war because they knew that the Arabs would attack them. This is what the, the Arabs kept saying. We, don't, we, we can't stand you being here. We will destroy you. We don't want you here. And eventually, we will attack you. This was the message the Jews got, and so they organized for war. Later historians would say the Jews didn't organize sufficiently, but they obviously organized enough to beat the Palestinians and then to smash, eventually, the Arab armies. Even though the smashing of the Arab armies, incidentally, wasn't that total. The Jordanians won almost every battle they fought against the Jews, and so did the Syrians. But uh, the Egyptian army was totally defeated. And at the end of the war, the Jews ended up uh, with a state, which is the Arab states didn't want the Jewish state to emerge. Uh, and the Jews ended up with 2,000 square miles more uh, than the United Nations had allotted them in the partition plan. So the Jews essentially won the war, even though they didn't win all the battles. In addition to this business of organization, the Jews had much greater motivation than the Arabs around them and the Arabs amidst them, the Palestinians, in the battle. And they fought better. They were braver, if you like. Why were they braver? Why did they fight better? Because three years before the Holocaust had ended, the Jewish people, including the relatives of all those 650,000 in Palestine, had just been slaughtered, their brothers, their sisters, their mothers, their fathers, and come the war three years after 1945, 
three years after the Holocaust, the Jews in Palestine feared a second Holocaust by the Arabs because the Arabs were described as bloodthirsty, that they would massacre the Jews if they won the war. So the Jews had great motivation to fight well. And this is what they did with great sacrifice and courage, and they fought much better. The Arab armies also, it should be noted, especially those from Egypt, Syria, and Iraq, were soldiers who came from far away. They weren't fighting for their homes or their countries. They were invading another country a long way from their homes. So they had much less motivation. It's true they were motivated also by Islamic ideology, which saw the Jews as an enemy, an infidel who should be uprooted. But essentially, they weren't fighting for their homes and their own lives and their families. So this was also important. One other aspect which should be noted is the financial aspect. To fight a war, you need money to buy arms, to buy ammunition, to provide for the fuel, for the tanks and the the trucks and whatever. The Jews had the backing economically of world jewelry. They received somewhere between 100 and 150 million dollars in the course of the war, essentially from American jewelry. And this is what financed their war and financed their acquisition of arms, ammunition, and so on. Whereas the Arab states were essentially poor, especially the frontline states, those who were busy fighting Israel, the Egyptians, the Jordanians, the Syrians, these were poor states. And the wealthier Arab states weren't that wealthy. They weren't like today, the Saudis and who had a, at least some money from petrol. They didn't contribute much to the war. So the Arabs essentially were poor countries fighting a far wealthier country, even though this was a very small country and demographically very small. Perfectly laid out. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I just want to come on to another two bits of revisionism. The official view was that the Arabs had a coordinated plan And you say that the Arabs were very much divided. The Jordanians had their own goals. The Egyptians had theirs, the Syrians, etc. And then if you could combine your answer with also another official version, which was that it was Arab intransigence that prevented peace. You said initially in that work, and I know some of your views have been somewhat revised, and I'll maybe come on to that later, that 
initially, at least what you said was that Israel was primarily to blame for the dead end in terms of a true solution. So c- could you walk us through those two things? I, I, ne- I never said that the, the Israelis were to blame for the lack of a peace settlement at the end of the war. I didn't put it like that. But uh, let's start earlier. The Arab states invaded, that is Syria, Egypt, Jordan, and Syria, invaded Palestine on the 15th of May. The Palestinian Arab militias had been defeated. The Palestinian people had defeated. Many of them had gone into exile, been uprooted from their homes, and the Arab states invaded. It's true that the Arab states invaded for a variety of reasons. Most of the Arab invaders, most of the heads of the Arab states, probably wanted to help their Palestinian brothers and to crush the Jewish state, or at least to harm it critically in their invasion. I'm talking about Syria, Egypt, and the Iraqis. The Jordanians, however, were a sort of a worm in the apple in terms of the Arab alliance, because Jordan's king, Abdullah, had previously, before the war, entered into secret negotiations with the Jews in Palestine to reach a two-state settlement, but not with the Palestinians, a two-state partition of the land between Jordan and the Jews. He wanted Jordan to have the West Bank and East Jerusalem, and the Jews would have more or less the rest. This was the deal worked out between Jordan and the Jewish agency, which was the Jewish government at the time, the fourth state within Palestine. And this was not a written agreement, but more or less agreed by the two sides. This meant that the Palestinians would not have a state and that the UN partition resolution would leave the Jews part of Palestine and the Jordanians would take over the rest. It's true that in the end, the Jordanians and the Jews ended up fighting because they didn't agree about the future of Jerusalem. So there were battles around Jerusalem, on the road to Jerusalem, and so on. But essentially, they partitioned Palestine between them. They took the West Bank and East Jerusalem, the Jordanians, which they managed to hold on to until 1967, when during the Six-Day War, Israel took it over. And the Jews held, at the end of the 1948 war, the rest of the uh, territory of historic Palestine, except for the Gaza Strip, which, as they said, was occupied The Egyptians and the Syrians and Jordanians also had, apart from this general wish to not have a Jewish state as their neighbors, that is, the Syrians, the the Egyptians, and the Iraqis, they they had intentions, that is, the Egyptians wanted to occupy the southern part of Palestine, the Negev. The Syrians apparently wanted to take over the Sea of Galilee and part of the Galilee, and so on. So each of them entered with annexationist desires, if you like, imperialist desires, in addition to destroying the Jewish state. And as I said, the Jordanians wanted the West Bank, but also were willing to leave the Jews, the rest of Palestine, for their state. So this disunity among the Arab invaders of Palestine on the 15th of May, eventually, even though they all invaded on the same day, their unity fell apart because of this disunity, and eventually they each went their own ways, and the Jordanians sort of left the war in July 1948, left the war making to the Egyptians, and the Syrians dropped out a few months later, leaving Israel opposite the Egyptians at the end of the war, and Israel defeated the Egyptians, and then the Egyptians sued for peace by the end of 1948, and this led to the armistice agreements, which formally ended the war. At the end of the war, Israel and the Jordanians renewed their peace negotiations, their secret peace negotiations, 
but they couldn't agree on terms for a separate Jordanian-Israeli peace. From Transjordan come recent pictures of an Arab convoy passing through the capital, Amman, on its way to Jerusalem. Watching the departure of his troops is King Abdullah, who has since taken part in truce discussions with Count Bernadotte. The cameraman accompanied the Arab convoy on its journey, obtaining vivid impressions of the type of country that lies along the route between Transjordan and the Holy City. Jerusalem itself, and here the alert sentries and quiet streets tell their own story of recent battles. So too does a dormitory in a college formerly occupied by a religious brotherhood. Those within move with caution while Arabs return the fire of enemy snipers. In the hill country around the city, guerrilla warfare goes on. The ancient Arab devotions are not forgotten, as nearby the soldiers' comrades keep watch and ward over the troubled scene. Abdullah had a cabinet which was averse to a separate deal with the Jews. Much of the cabinet were worried they would be accused as traitors if they broke Arab ranks and made peace separately with the Jews, much as Sadat did the same thing and made peace with Israel in 1979 and paid with his, with his life a couple of years later by a Muslim assassin. The same thing incidentally happened to Abdullah, who had made these secret negotiations, but never actually signed a peace agreement with Israel, but was nonetheless assassinated by a Palestinian gunman in 1951. Arab leaders have learned that if you start making peace with the Jews, and you're going to be assassinated. This has always been something on Arab leaders' minds when they approach the idea of making peace. But in any case, the Jordanians and the Israelis failed to reach agreement. It's possible the Israelis, and I have suggested this in a various books, the Israelis could have been more generous in the peace terms Israel offered in exchange for peace with the Jordanians, perhaps some form of refugee repatriation, perhaps a little territory here and there. And the Jews said, no, you guys attacked us. We don't want to pay for peace. You don't deserve it. Certainly, you don't deserve large chunks of concessions. No peace deal was made. So I say it was partly Israel's fault, partly internal Jordanian politics. The other Arab states were unwilling to make peace with Israel. On this, I may have slightly revised my views in the sense that Israel wasn't, as I say, generous about possible repatriation of refugees in exchange for Arab willingness to make peace. But on the other hand, the Arab leaders in Syria, in Iraq, in Egypt, were unwilling to make real peace with the Jews. This essentially is, is the truth of the situation at the end of the 48th war. The Arab leaders had been terribly humiliated by their defeat by this cluster of 650,000 Jews and weren't going to be further humiliated by agreeing to peace with this 650,000 Jews. Um, so I think that was probably the main reason Arab states were unwilling simply to accept this Jewish state in their midst. And one mustn't forget the Jewish state in their midst was literally that. It cut the Arab world in two. Israel slices the Arab in two, the Arab world and the Muslim world today also, but then as well at the end of the 48th war in two. On the left, you've got the Arab states of North Africa, Egypt, Morocco, and so on. On the right, you have Iraq, Syria, and Jordan. And this, again, was a terrible humiliation for the Arabs that their world had been cut in two by the establishment of this Jewish state. So essentially, I think the Arab leaders were unwilling to make peace at the time with the Jews. And after the 1973 war, came to understand that it's probably better, at least Sadat, president of Egypt, came to understand that it's better to reach a peace agreement with Israel rather than continuing this endless war with the Jews, which might end up in, in the destruction of Egypt in a nuclear war, which was a possibility Sadat, I think, feared. And uh, that led 
So that break ranks with the Arabs in the 1970s and make peace with the Jews. And other Arab states like Jordan followed making peace with Israel in the 1990s. And recently, we see the United Arab Emirates, Bahrain, Morocco, etc., making peace with the Jewish state or normalizing relations with the Jewish state. All of this sort of took a long time for the Arab world to accept the existence of a Jewish state in their midst. But eventually, much of the Arab world agreed to it. The problem, of course, remains that the Palestinian problem at the core of this conflict remains unresolved and is a real thorn in the side of anybody who wants to make peace between the Jews and the Arabs in the Middle East. I want to end up talk, talking about that because it seems to be that one of the goals of the Israeli state is to isolate the, the Palestinian people by having peace treaties with Jordan or Morocco, Egypt, of, of which, which you've said. But just before we, we finish up with, with 1948 specifically and your work, which is well, ostensibly when you looked into Israeli government papers, was it easy to reconcile the fact that you're a Zionist and to have the pushback, at least the initial pushback that you had in terms of the rewriting of the mythology, the propaganda of the early Israeli state? I don't think I had a real problem. The truth is I grew up in Israel and in New York. That is, my father was a diplomat, so some of my youth and childhood was spent abroad. I didn't undergo a normal Israeli education, primary school, high school. I did later do a BA in the Hebrew University in Jerusalem, but then I did a PhD on European history, in fact, in Cambridge. So I had a sort of an external perspective on what went on here. But also, I was an Israeli, so I knew this Israeli society and the way it operated and worked from within. So in that sense, I think I still had a more objective perspective. My sense was, reading through the documentation, but knowing the narratives of both sides, that the Zionist cause was a just cause. The Jews deserved the state, should have established a state, and were right in establishing a state, and the Arabs essentially were wrong in not allowing the establishment of it, or not wanting to allow the establishment of the Jewish state. The Arabs have today 23 or 24 states, whatever the number is, from the Atlantic to the Persian Gulf. The Jews have this little strip of land called Israel, one state. So I think there's a sort of a fairness in this division of the territory between the Atlantic and the Persian Gulf. But Looking at the documentation, I found uh, in the 1980s when I began my research, some of the things the Jews decided and some of the things the Jews did on their march to statehood and in the 48 war and in the 1950s weren't completely moral or were uh, darkened by uh, certain incidents and events and things they did which weren't, didn't leave a pure picture of the Zionist enterprise. And as I say, this in a sense clashed with my view that Israel basically was right in the things that it had done in the sense of establishing a state and wanting to maintain a state for the Jews as a refuge, if you like, from a world which had oppressed Jews for 2,000 years and so on. And that the Arabs were wrong in the sense that they were unwilling to compromise. The truth is that the Arabs have come around, many of the Arabs, not the Palestinians necessarily, but they've come around to accepting the existence of a Jewish state in this little sliver of territory called Palestine or the land of Israel. I don't know if this answers your question. It does. And and, and you've added healthy nuance. Let me add one more thing. My job or my vocation or whatever you want to call it 
as an historian meant that I should look at the documents, as many documents as I could get. And incidentally, Arab archives are all closed. Arab states, all of them being dictatorships, they don't open their archives. But there's sufficient documentation in the Israeli archives, the British archives, the American archives to work out what had happened in 48. And my job as an historian was to look at the documents and see what they told happened. And this is what I wrote down to the annoyance of many Israelis and to the annoyance of some Palestinians. But this is what historians are supposed to do. The United Nations General Assembly, which helped create the State of Israel, now votes on the Young Republic's application for UN membership. Assembly President Evident announces... And I therefore formally declare Israel admitted to membership in the United Nations. America's Austin congratulates Foreign Minister Moshe Sharet as Israel's delegation joins the General Assembly. Next day at Lake Success, the Blue and White Star of David joins the flags of the other 58 member states. Israel, born of war, in Tel Aviv, the crowds are so big that a giant parade has to be cancelled. In synagogues throughout the nation, worshippers recite from the psalms of praise, Enough have you sat in the veil of weeping. And they translate their words into rejoicing action. In 2023, after the Hamas attack, is it still easy to describe yourself as a Zionist? And to believe in a solution, a political, a geopolitical solution, which would have as its end game a Palestinian state, which is viable. As a Zionist, I'm agreeable to a two-state solution. I think that's a solution which would give a modicum of justice to both peoples. The Jews would have a state and the Palestinian Arabs would have a small state consisting essentially of the West Bank, the Gaza Strip, East Jerusalem, and perhaps in confederation with Jordan, which would be a fairly sizable state, at least two or three times the size of Israel if it confederated with Jordan. This would be the ideal. The problem is the leadership in Jordan doesn't want this. They don't want to subordinate themselves to Palestinians and become part of a Palestinian state. And many Jews here don't want a a two-state solution. They want all of Palestine or the land of Israel for themselves. And the Palestinians have never given up the idea of destroying the Jewish state and converting all of Palestine into an Arab-Palestinian state. This is the problem. So I may want a two-state solution, a Jewish state side-by-side with a Palestinian-Arab state, perhaps, as I say, confederated with Jordan, but most people here in this area today aren't agreeable to this. And how you get change their minds, I don't know. Look, after World War II, as a result of what happened to them in World War II, the Germans and the Japanese changed their minds and became different people. They became Democrats. They were agreeable to concessions and agreed to live in a peaceful, free world with the Western powers who had beaten them. The Palestinians and many other people in the Arab world have never agreed to the Jews beating them, never resigned themselves to this. And as far as one can see, They're not yet agreeable to this. And the Hamas attack of the 7th of October a few weeks ago only drove home the message that there are a lot of Arabs out there who simply want to kill Jews and get rid of the Jewish state. And this is part of the problem from the Zionist perspective, from the Israeli perspective. Because if this is what the enemy wants, it's not going to be easy to make peace with them. But it isn't all of what your opponents want, though, is it? And you have hinted at this. There is a difference between Hamas and Fatah. And Fatah 
finds itself in this almost like an invidious position where in some part it's seen as collaborating with the Israeli state. But then increasingly, if we deal with the, just the West Bank, that there are Israeli settlers who do want an Israeli state to encompass all of the West Bank, or let's say I call it Judea and Samaria. And these settlements are increasingly encroaching on their land and they're powerless to stop it because they are the Palestinian Authority, whereby there are, in effect, occupying forces of the state of Israel on two thirds of, of the West Bank. So it's not that all Palestinians want to drive Israel off the map and, and the PLO, which fundamentally is fatter and, and is the governance of the Palestinian Authority in 1994, gave formal recognition to the state of Israel. Yeah, look, I'm sure there are Palestinians who are willing to make peace with Israel. But I have a feeling that all Palestinians or 95% of Palestinians do not agree to the legitimacy of the Zionist enterprise or the state of Israel. In other words, they may, for realpolitik reasons, be willing to make their peace with a Jewish state, but in their hearts they believe Israel and Zionism are a robber state, a robber ideology, which has deprived them of the large part of Palestine. I think this is truthful. I think this is a truthful assessment. The Hamas says so openly that the Jews are robbers and killers, and we must drive them into the sea. The Fatah, or the PLO as you call them, or the Palestinian Authority, which governs much of the West Bank, they say they are willing to um, countenance a two-state solution. I'm not sure how true, how deeply felt this is. But there are, as I say, as you say, Palestinians who are willing to make peace. And there are certainly a lot of Arabs out there, certainly the leadership class in the Arab world, perhaps not the street, the leadership a class in the Arab world who believes this endless war with the Jews is not going to be good in the end for the Arabs as well, and they must resign themselves to the existence of a Jewish state, as I say, in a very, very narrow strip of the Middle East. Yeah, I, I think you make a, a really interesting point about the real politique and then what's in, in people's hearts. And I, and I would say that Egypt in the 1970s after the Yom Kippur War, Sadat needed that Yom Kippur War, if you take a wider view of history, to show that he was an Arab nationalist. However, that then gave him somewhat cover to then have peace with relative honour. So what was ever in his heart, the real politique was, as you said, Israel by the 1970s was a, a nuclear state and there was going to be no military defeating of Israel by Egypt. So whatever was in his heart, this was a case of let's normalize and settle this border with this nation, regardless of what you think about it in your heart. The real politique is you cannot win this war with four, at least three, if not four kinetic wars, if you count Suez. And each time we've lost, and then maybe the Yom Kippur War, we did our best showing. So I think the real politique is that, and, and that's the most important thing, that the Palestinian people have had 70 plus years of statelessness. And I don't think any rational and moderate Palestinian is truly believing that Israel uh, can be defeated, but what they want is a viable state. But Professor, I've loved this conversation. We've been talking for an hour. It's been wonderful to meet you. Can we maybe get you on the podcast again? maybe to talk about um, other important um, stepping stones from 
the creation of the state of Israel to to where we are now. Would could, could we call upon you maybe in, a, in another month or so uh, to give us another historical background from an Israeli perspective? I, I'll be fine with that. And incidentally, I enjoyed our conversation also. And I'm surprised how knowledgeable you are about my affairs. <laughs> I, I will hold my hand up here, Professor. I'm a total history bore. And, and as a child, as I said, Musha Dayan was one of the most captivating figures for eight, nine-year-old me, who was an only okay. child. And, and as many boys of that age are, they are captivated by military, stories of military daring and military do. And there, there was something very evocative to me back then about a people who, after 2,000 years and 100 generations, their descendants have gone back to the land which their forefathers used to occupy. And as I say to people over and over, as a history ball, this is unprecedented in human history. To redraw the world's map to something 2,000 years ago doesn't happen. Like, it just doesn't happen. And this was before the English were the English. So forget the Americans and the Canadians and the Argentinians, forget all of that. This is before the English were even the English. And that was never lost on the eight, nine-year-old me. But also the story of those people who left or were forced to leave their homes, the Palestinians, has always been a tragedy for me. And I've been able, in my mind, to reconcile the fact that Israel has won its right to exist through various wars. But I don't see why that is... um, a zero-sum game for the Palestinians and Palestinian state. So I've always been fervent in my support for the two peoples to coexist. And I come at this from that perspective. Israel is a country I've been to, and I had a thoroughly amazing time there. But I do believe in a two-state solution, and I think that the only real way that the Israeli people will have true peace and security is when there is a just, an equitable peace with the peoples of the West Bank. We can call them Judea and Samaria and with the people of Gaza. And I, I think that also what you alluded to is instructive in part about how the Allies dealt with Japan and Germany after the Second World War. If we put Japan slightly to one side, that's slightly complicated because Hirohito is kept in power if not symbolically, to have a, a link of con- political continuity. But the comprehensive defeat of Nazism in Germany was military, economic, and, and ideology. And that is what has, has not happened with, with the Palestinian people. And defeating Hamas, root and branch, doesn't defeat the will of Palestinians to have a viable state. And Hamas should be defeated. So don't misconstrue what what I'm saying. But then what the Allies did was, and this is fascinating, when we look at the denazification of Germany, and then the British very quickly realized that if you purge everybody who was at least a card-carrying Nazi, that the state doesn't work. There's nobody in the post office. So there is a level of then re-education and acceptance of people who were at least were paper carrying Nazis 
and an un- understanding that they needed to join the Nazi party just to do business. They weren't necessarily ideological Nazis, as well as unprecedented economic aid. So we need to address the political aspirations of the people who are militarily defeated, flattened. We need to be concerted with that economic aid, etc. And also to create a viable state. And so the history of the denazification of Germany is instructive in part, not completely. But Professor, I can talk about history and where it touches geopolitics all day, every day. And I'd love to have you back on the show. Professor, tell us exactly what you're working on at the moment and possibly where people can find your work online, sir. Online, there's lots of uh, YouTubes and articles and so on I've written. Even a few of my books are online. I think pirated editions. As to what I'm doing today, I'm a bit embarrassed to tell you, but I'm actually at the moment completing a book on atrocities in the 1948 war. I touched on this subject in my various books, but I decided now to write a book looking at both sides' atrocities, detailing them and analyzing how and why they happened in 48. So this is the book I'm supposed to complete by February. Professor Benny Morris, thank you for coming on to Mid-Atlantic. You are an eminent Israeli historian and we were so happy to have your presence on the show and we'll get you on again soon to help give us a little bit of a background, at least from an Israeli perspective, but I think you're pretty fair and balanced so we understand exactly why Hamas and Israel are in conflict right now by understanding the past. Thank you again, sir. Many thanks for having me. Likewise, sir. And just before the professor goes, you can send me an email at royfield at gmail.com if you would like to berate me and say I wasn't hard enough on the professor or maybe I was too hard on him, you can send it to royfield at gmail.com. Also, what you can do to the love of all things holy, doesn't matter what God you profess to pray to, write us a five-star review, please, on, on Apple iTunes or on Spotify. That is the best way you can give praise to this podcast because we're all about dialogue. I've held my hand up and I've said, I do believe um, in the rights of the Palestinian people to have their own land, a viable state. But that doesn't negate the fact that Israel needs peace and security. And maybe in this conflict, in this terrible conflict, maybe this is the darkest moment before dawn. Maybe. I am someone who's a bit kumbaya and always believes in the inherent goodness of humans and the human spirit, but I've still yet to be proven wrong that sometimes peace and justice, that, that road is incredibly long and it is windy, but the arc of history does bend towards it eventually. With that in mind, I'd like to bid you all adieu. Uh, how do we say goodbye in, in Hebrew, Professor? It's like saying hello, shalom. I thought it was, but I didn't want to... I'm sure you know that. You know what? I did know, but I didn't want to potentially just make a a mistake. So it's shalom from the professor and goodbye from me. Bye-bye.